very fine print up there. It is Sunday school stories that you thought you knew. How many of us remember those same old Sunday school stories that we heard every Sunday school, every vacation Bible school we heard over? Noah and the Ark was one, right? Daniel in the lion's den was one. David and Goliath was one. The, the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. Zacchaeus. All of these are stories that we are going to hear. If I was the kind of person that liked to torture you, I would start each Sunday by singing the uh, accordant little Sunday school song that went with each story, but I have no interest in torturing you. And I also can't remember the one for Noah. It involves something about Arky Arkies. And that's about as far as my memory goes. It is going to help us to, to see these stories, hopefully in a new way. You know, sometimes we think we know something so well that we need to look at it again to really see what is there. To really understand how these stories fit into the overall story of God at work and His people and, 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 and how these stories fit into with the Gospel story. And so, we are this Sunday looking at the story of Noah. So we will be in Genesis chapter 6, if you will turn with me. In case you, you, you don't know where it is, we're only a couple of pages in. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be starting with verse 9. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you will keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, we give you thanks for your word. 
We give you thanks for this story that so many of us know so well. So God, I pray that as we open it and as we look at it with new eyes, as we look at it again for the first time, that you would be with us. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. May be seated. Okay. Have you ever stopped to really think about how strange it is that we use the story of Noah as a kid's story? If you step down into our nursery down here, you will see a wallpaper border that goes around that is the ark and all of the animals. It looks like they're probably walking out of the ark at the end of the flood. Uh, how many times have you seen kids' rooms or nurseries and churches decorated like that? Or, or they're, they're ark toys that you've got the boat and then you've got the little animals. Of course, the animals are never in scale to the boat. Because either if, if it was, the boat would have to be huge or the animals so tiny that they'd be a choking hazard. I think Fisher-Price at one point even made a little people's ark. But if we think about it, And if you think about what the story of Noah and his ark is, it's a little strange. Frederick Buechner was a a writer, a novelist, a Presbyterian minister. He passed away back in August. He he once wrote this about the story of Noah. Yet if you stop to look at it at all, this is a really dark tale. It's as dark a tale as there is in the Bible, which is full of dark tales. It's a tale of God's terrible despair over the human race and his decision to visit them with a great flood that would destroy them all except for this one old man, Noah, and his family. Only now we give it to children to read, and one wonders why. I think Beekner's on to something here. I mean, perhaps it's because of our rosy exposure to these stories, to this story and some of the others that we're going to be looking at through this series. The, 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 the Sunday school, vacation Bible school exposure that we had to them, that, that we miss what's really going on in these stories. And that's why we're taking this time to, to look at them and see what there is in them for our lives today, to see how they do fit into God's overall story. And this, as Beekner called it, dark story of Noah and his ark is a perfect place to start. The story of Noah is what we might call from the, the primordial or the primeval histories. So these are the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's it's basically everything that happens in Genesis before God calls Abram and says that from Abram he is going to make his people. And one of the major themes of these 11 chapters, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, is the fact that humanity cannot understand that they are not and in fact cannot become God. That's the story of Adam and Eve. They want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the temptation that the serpent brings them? Eat of it and you will be like God. Cain kills Abel because 
He wants to have control over life and death. He's mad at God that God prefers his brother over him. And so he takes life into his own hands. You have the story immediately preceding the story of Noah, the story of of the Nephilim. We're told back in the first part of chapter 6 that the the sons of God took the daughters of men and had them as wives. And it was the time of this, this, this mysterious group called the Nephilim. The last story in these 11 chapters is the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Where the, where the people decide that they can get together and they can build a structure so large that it can reach heaven over and over again in these 11 chapters god is having to remind the people that they are not god and that he is and so right here in the middle of these 11 chapters you get the story of noah and and the ark and it actually is, is one of those, it's probably the longest story in these 11 chapters. It takes all of chap, most of chapter 6, all of 7, of 8, and of 9. As we start the story, we see that God has already declared judgment against the people against humanity if if we were to back up a little bit before verse 9 back up into verses 5 and 6 we see there when the lord saw that human weaknesses wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time every inclination of the human mind was nothing These are absolute statements, right? Nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. The the, the literal Hebrew expression there is he was grieved in his heart. You know, there are those who try and play this gotcha game when it comes to the story of Noah and the ark. They point to the story and they're like, see, see, here is an example of the fact that God is a moral monster. The people misbehaved a little bit and God kills them all. But what we see here first is that God is saddened. And, and deeply grieved. See, this is not the story of a capricious madman who, who unites the, the stones into his gauntlet and snaps his fingers to wipe out humanity. This isn't, this isn't Thanos. This isn't Avengers. This is, this is God. 
And see, I think that we get here and we, we say this, that, that, we, that God is a, is a monster in this story. We can only say that if we have forgotten who exactly God is. Brothers and sisters, God is not here to serve you. In fact, you are here to serve God. God is not here to worship you. In fact, you are here to worship God. And I don't mean you are here inside these four walls this morning. I mean your place in creation is to worship God. God is not here to to coddle us and comfort us. God is the totally sovereign, totally perfect, totally just, totally holy creator of the universe. And we aren't. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of these stories, and it's, it's actually one of the points of the big story. That God is God, and we are not. And, and the fact that we are not means that we fail Him and we sin against Him, and the fact that we are not means that we cannot save ourselves and we must be saved by Him. And so into this, this judgment that has been pronounced by God steps this, this figure, Noah. We find out at the, verse of, at the end of chapter 5 is where, where we see Noah's name for the first time. And we see there that, that Noah is 500 years old. Noah is 500 years old. Now he's going to live to be 950 years old. His, his grandfather was Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And so at, at the age of 500, God comes to Noah and he says, I've got a job for you. Now, I, I've got a question. How many of you are a couple of years short of 500 and you're already a little tired and don't want to take on a job this big? But God comes to Noah, and, and the text tells us here, it tells us three things about Noah, right there in verse 9. We find out first that Noah was a righteous man. We see that he was blameless among his contemporaries. And we see that Noah walked with God. Now this word righteous, this is a word that we see a lot in Scripture. And so sometimes... When we see it so often, we fail to understand something. And that is right here in chapter 6 of Genesis and this description of Noah is the first time that the word righteous, sadiq, shows up in Scripture. It's the first time that word has been used by God's word to describe someone. Righteous is also one of those words that it's hard for us to really know what it means. Right? 
And oftentimes when we use it in our sort of contemporary language, we don't mean it good, do we? A lot of times we talk about somebody being self-righteous. I mean, it's almost become, oh, you think you're so righteous. Then we've almost turned it into an epithet, into a curse word. But, but Sadiq, this word, it's translated as righteous. It, it can also be translated as just. Noah was, was just. And that gives us an indication of how he interacts with the people around him, right? Can, can we describe someone as just if they never interact with anybody else? Can we describe someone as righteous if they never interact with anybody else? Those are descriptive words about how Noah interacts with people. And we see that Noah is righteous. He's just. We also see, right, that he is blameless among his contemporaries. Now, this does not mean that Noah is without sin. It does not mean that he has achieved some sort of sinless perfection. What it does mean is that sort of alone among the people who walked the earth at that time, Noah lived according to God's will. Now, did Noah fail? Did Noah falter? Absolutely. In fact, before we get to the end of the story of Noah, we see see Noah fail in a pretty big way. But he is living in accordance with God's will. And the last word is he walks with God. And I think that's related to to the other two, right? If, If you're walking with God, you're going to be just. If you're walking with God, you're going to be blameless. You're going to be living according to God's will. But I also hope it reminds you of this. Does it remind you of the story of the fall When God comes to the garden in the cool of the evening to walk among his creation and Noah and Eve are not walking with him. But Noah walks with God. Noah is righteous and blameless. And so, and so God comes to him. And it's, and, and, and it's this, this thing that we see a little later in Genesis, right? We see the fact that God is going to destroy two cities on the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants to destroy them. And, and Abraham says, well, what if there's a righteous man there? And there's that whole scene where he bargains with God. And eventually God spares his nephew Lot. God chooses Noah. God chooses Noah. He he selects Noah. Why? We're reminded, we see it here again in verse 11, what we had seen in the verses previously, that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was filled with wickedness. Does anyone have a different word for wickedness? You, You might see there, you might see the word violence. I know the English Standard Version translates the word here that as wickedness translates it as violence. Also injustice would be another appropriate translation. So, so now wickedness, violence, injustice. Are you getting a picture of what the world is like? And if you don't have a picture of it, 
may I suggest you open your computer or your phone and pull up your social media feed and look at the world around us. Saw a video the other day from the subway in New York City where a man repeatedly stomps on another man's head. Interestingly, the installation of cameras all over the city of New York has not prevented and deterred crime. It just lets us see it. So the earth was corrupt. It was filled with wickedness, with violence, with, with injustice. In fact, it was sort of the opposite of Noah, right? If Noah is righteous and Noah is just, then he's sort of the opposite of injustice. God had had created man perfectly in the garden. But but after that first sin of Adam and Eve, the sin had grown worse. Over in Romans, in the third chapter of Romans, Paul has this section where he quotes extensively from the Psalms, including Psalm 14. Romans 3.10 and following. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. This is the status of the world in Noah's day, and it's the status of the world now. And so God, looking at this, says, I'm, I'm putting an end to it. I'm deeply grieved. I'm saddened by this. I don't know what to do. I, has anybody ever, have you ever tried to make something, maybe a cupcake? And it turns into a hot mess? And it makes you a little sad? Sometimes it depends on how much time and effort and energy and pain and love you have invested in the making of that thing. But you can see it, and it, it grieves you. Now imagine God looking at his creation, his, his creation that he had declared was very good, and to see it sliding into utter wickedness and corruption. And so God decides to turn it off and turn it back on. You've done that, right? with your computer or your phone or the TV. I can't get it to work. I don't know what it is. I'm going to turn it off and turn it back on. There's a really funny British comedy show called The IT Crowd. And it's these IT guys who work for this large corporation and they answer the, that's how they answer the phone. Have you turned it off and turned it back on? This is the IT department. And so that's what God's doing. He's going to turn it off and turn it back on. He's going to re- hit the reset button. Except he doesn't really, right? Because he saves Noah and Noah's family and the animals that are with Noah in the ark. He's going he's to hit the reset button, but he's going to start creation again with the, with the person that he not only has made, but the person that he has chosen, Noah. So he tells Noah to build this big boat. Big boat. 
450 feet long. Does anyone know off the top of your head how long a football field is? 360 feet. So longer than a football field. 75 feet wide. 45 uh, uh, feet high. Now, that's over a three-story building. So, so when you leave here today, if you get a chance, come out of the building and come around to the building back here behind the worship center. That's a three-story building, and I want you to sit there and think about how tall that is. That's how tall the ark was. And then think about it extending almost all the way down to the park. Big boat, I don't think, begins to cover the ark. It's massive. We're told it takes Noah 120 years to build it. A good indication that Noah did not, in fact, know what he was doing. But then God tells Noah, he says, oh, okay, I'm going to do this thing, and I want you to build this boat, but I want you to build this boat because I'm going to protect you, because there's going to be safety in this boat. What he says there in, in verse 18 is, but I will establish my covenant with you. So second covenant that we have is the first explicit covenant we have in Scripture, the second covenant that we have altogether. Noah made covenant with Adam, and now he will make covenant with Noah. And so even before the first raindrop falls, even before the first tree has been felled, there is a glimmer of hope that, that God is going to establish covenant with his people, with the people that he has chosen. And so if we were to continue reading, we see that Noah builds the ark, the animals come, the unicorns miss the boat, God floods the earth. After 40 days, the rains cease. A little while longer, the water begins to recede. Eventually, the dove is sent out and comes back with a branch. They know it's almost time. One more time, the dove goes out and never comes back. And then God repeats to Noah the words that he had given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you as I gave the green plants. I have given you everything. It's the, it's the recreation of the world. We had creation and we had recreation and eventually, if you, if you jump way ahead to the book of Revelation, you're going to see another recreation of the world. And, and we see that what God has done is God has chosen those that he is going to save. He takes them through the danger, and then he recreates the world. God, when he makes this covenant with Noah, he, he says that I will put my bow in the sky as a sign now, we often interpret that as a rainbow, don't we? When we be very clear, Genesis does not, in fact, say, I will put my rainbow in the sky. But we understand it, and it fits. 
That's the same word in Hebrew. But have you ever looked at a rainbow? In what direction is the bow pointed? Is it pointed at us? Is it pointed at the earth? If you were to put an arrow in that bow and pull the string back, in what direction would that arrow go? It would go into the heavens. What God has done, he's made a promise and a covenant. I, I will take the punishment for the sins of the world. The arrow is pointed at me now. Not at you. Now, unfortunately, the flood does not remove sin, as I sort of alluded to earlier. If you continue, there's, there's more to the story that's even more family inappropriate. Let's just say that the, the first thing that Noah does after he gets off the ark is plant grapes and make wine. How did sin escape the flood? How did sin escape this recreation? It got onto the ark with Noah and his family. See, even though God has chosen his people, even those who are righteous, even those who are blameless among their contemporaries, even those who walk with God can carry sin into the ark. We try so hard sometimes to to manage sin, to to put it outside the ark that we forget to acknowledge that it's present with us, that it's in our midst. So how does this fit into the bigger story of what God is at work doing? Well, I think it tells us some important things about the nature of God and who God is, the nature of sin and what it means. I think God's covenant with Noah tells us something about how he intends to handle the problem of sin going forward, that it's on on him and not on us. But I think it's also this. We can think of us, the church, the body of Christ, as an ark. Something constructed by humans, but at the command of God. To, to protect us and keep us safe. To help us weather the storms. But it's also important to remember that The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the ark. The vessel by which we can escape the wrath and judgment of God. And outside, the storms can rage and the wind can blow and the waters can rise. But if you are in Christ, you are safe. You're not sinless. You're not perfect. You're still a fallen creature. 
but you're safe. And God will get us through the storm to the other side, and then he will recreate. And the day will come when the Lord will return, and the new heaven and a new earth will meet at Zion, and the river of life will flow from the gates of that city to all the earth. But until then, place yourself in the body of Christ, in Jesus, and weather the storm. Our hymn of invitation this morning is 275, I Surrender.